Well, good morning, everybody. Very good to see you all this morning, and uh, it was great, wasn't it, to see the music team in action. They haven't actually played together uh, as a group before today, but it was a Five Nations band, wasn't it? Um, Kenya, England, Uganda, Malawi, and South Africa. So that was pretty good, wasn't it? There was one magical moment in the rehearsal when Gillian accidentally hit a button and we had two or three minutes of boogie-woogie beat. And there was a certain amount of foot tapping going on on the stage. Uh, The atmosphere changed in a heartbeat. It was rather marvellous. Maybe we'll have that a bit later on. And then you'll remember earlier this year, it was a great joy to welcome Mike Neville from St. Simon's Elotes Church here. Uh, He did uh, a weekend of ministry with us and a preaching course for some pastors from the townships on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, it's a delight to welcome Tim from that church here with us this morning. Won't you please go and shake his hand after the service, ask him what he does and make him feel at home. Uh, I'm sure he'd appreciate that. But first, um, keep your Bible open. Also have, please, the outline uh, from the white bulletin in front of you. And I'm going to ask for God's help as we come to this passage. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this magnificent book, the book of Judges, which was perhaps a closed book to many of us before we began this journey together. We do thank you for the lessons you've been teaching us, as Mariano shared, and we pray again this morning, Lord, that you would open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word, and we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, I wonder if you have uh, ever felt despairing about South Africa uh, or despairing about the church. Um, I guess from time to time all of us have. I think perhaps one of the challenges of getting older is that we become more aware of things that are happening in the world around us. And if that's our only perspective... Well, it's not difficult to become really rather gloomy about the future. So I wonder if, like me, uh, you ever worry about how your children will prosper spiritually as our culture moves further and further away from God. If you do, I want to encourage you because the book of Judges is actually a message of hope. Uh, It gives us a different perspective And it teaches us that even in the worst of times, God is faithful and God is sufficient. And it's my prayer as we consider the situation in our passage this morning that we will have fresh hope. Why do I say that? Well, the the situation facing Israel becomes increasingly desperate as we work our way through the book. And we see very clearly the the grip of sin in all sorts of different ways. Now, uh, to put that in context, at the end of chapter 12, there is a sequence of three judges who are referred to only in passing. Uh, There's a man called Ibzan in verse 8, Elon in verse 11, and Abdon in verse 13. A little earlier, we didn't look at it, but in chapter 10, there were two other judges who were referred to only in passing, a man called Tola and Jer. 
We're told very little about these men, but the information that we are given is significant. Because if you put these judges together, there is one striking feature in common. They had unusually large families. In chapter 10, verse 4, Jer had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys and controlled 30 towns. In chapter 12, verse 8, Ibzan had 30 sons and 30 daughters. Uh, I imagine he spent most of his weekends at weddings. And then in uh, chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, Abdon had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. And you think to yourself, well, what on earth is going on? What's the point? Well, the point is that you don't have that many children from one wife. Uh, And in the book of Judges, you don't get anything like this until you come to Gideon, who we looked at uh, a couple of weeks ago. It all started with him. Gideon, you remember, had many wives, and he ended up having 70 sons. Now, of course, multiple marriages were common amongst ancient kings. They were a way of making treaties. And, of course, from all of those marriages, there were always lots of children. But Israel was supposed to be different. Genesis 2.24 says that God's design for marriage is an exclusive, permanent relationship between one man and one woman. So not one man and lots of wives. Now that was to be the rule in Israel, especially for the leaders. And it was God's decree for all generations. How do we know that? Well, we know it because the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul both quoted Genesis 2.24 as normative. But you see, these men in Judges disobeyed God. And it's very striking, I think, that it all happened on the back of one notable leader deciding that it was perfectly okay. You see, once Gideon did it, those that followed all decided that they could do it too. Now, friends, you see, that is how sin works. We say, don't we, well, if it's all right with him, well, okay, it must be all right for me too. And so today there is, isn't there, an increasing acceptance of certain values by people who call themselves Christian that would actually have horrified previous generations. You know, the things I'm talking about. Um, Divorce, same-sex marriage, uh, health, wealth and prosperity. But the lesson you see is be careful who you follow. And if you're a leader, and if you're a parent, a mother or a father, well, you are a leader, do be careful of the example that you're setting. Because when we say, that's all right, we encourage other people to think it's all right, even if it isn't in the sight of Almighty God. You see, Gideon was a great man. But in this particular area, he was wrong. And a very sad story followed from his example. 
And now it gets worse because in our passage, chapter 13, verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I wonder if you know how many times we've seen that phrase in Judges. Anybody want to have a guess? This is the ninth time that we've had that phrase. And it reminds us, I think, that Israel were the sometimes people of God. People who were sometimes obedient, sometimes faithful, sometimes prayerful. But under pressure, they forgot who they were and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So we continue reading in verse 1, the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now that's twice as long as any other period of judgment in the book. It's a sign that things are getting worse. And I think there's another lesson here for us about the nature of sin. Because you see, Satan is not interested in getting you and I to sin just once. He's always interested in getting us to repeat the sin. And if you and I say, well, you know, it's only a little sin and I'm only going to do it once so it won't matter, can I tell you that it will matter? Because it's hardly ever only once. And that's what we see here with Israel. And this time there's something that we haven't seen before. Because usually when Israel suffer the judgment of God, at some point we read that they cried out to the Lord. But here, they're not doing it. In other words, Israel have stopped praying. In fact, as we shall see, there's no sign of Israel even wanting to resist the Philistines. Every other judge that we've read about was able to call out armies of Israelites to resist their enemies. Uh, So Ehud, Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, they all did that. But you know, very interesting, in the story of Samson, there isn't a single other Israelite who stands alongside him ever. Now friends, that is where Satan wants to take you and me. Satan wants to take us to the point where we are so enslaved by sin, we are so sold out to things that are evil that we no longer ask for God's help. We no longer cry out, Lord, we need you. Please come quickly to save us. And uh, we stop saying that because we start to think perhaps we don't need God after all. Now the storyteller here doesn't actually tell us how the Philistines felt, uh, uh, sorry, how the Israelites felt about the Philistines. But it does seem, doesn't it, that they weren't particularly bothered because they weren't crying out to God about it. So spiritually speaking, the Israelites really were in a hopeless situation. But that is the situation in which God's grace begins to work. 
Now, to the outsider, the the story of God's grace in this passage might not be obvious. It might actually be almost invisible. You know, the outsider will skim read Judges 13 and say, well, I can't see anything about the grace of God here. I've no idea what Simon's talking about. But you see, friends, that is actually how the grace of God operates in our lives. It's rather like a seed that you plant in the garden. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And it's the same with grace. So in chapter 13, in fact, none of the Philistines are killed. Not one. So to the outsider, well, nothing really changes. And yet, God is laying the foundations for a real deliverance in Israel. So you see, just because you and I can't see what God is up to, doesn't actually mean God isn't working behind the scenes. Of course he is. And especially in times of hopelessness and in times of despair. So let's consider then how God's grace was operating here. And the first thing, rather briefly, that I want you to notice is that God's grace begins in the will of God. Grace always begins, actually, in the heart and will of God. And so the fact that Israel did not cry out did not stop God saving. And that, I think, is a very important principle. You and I urge each other to pray. The Bible teaches us to pray. And we will suffer spiritually if we don't pray. But ultimately, our praying does not determine what God does. God doesn't simply do what we ask. He does something bigger and richer and more wonderful than you and I would ever thought of asking. So, I mean, when you think of our own salvation, did you and I initiate it? No, we didn't. Romans 5 verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it was was while we were still God's enemies that we were reconciled to him. In other words, God's will is to work salvation even when his people aren't asking for it. And Judges chapter 13 is full of God. So in the 25 verses of this chapter, God or the Lord is mentioned 27 times. It's all about God taking the initiative in spite of the unworthiness and the prayerlessness of the people he's going to save. If you like, he is the always God moving in mercy to save sometimes people. So the great source of our hope, friends, is the will of God. 
Secondly, the, the grace of God here is announced in the word of God. In verse 3, uh, the angel of the Lord appears and he is the central figure all the way through to the end of the chapter. Now, who is he? Well, in verse 18, uh, when he's asked his name, just have a look at his answer in verse 18. Uh, Why do you ask my name, he says? It is beyond understanding. But actually, probably a better translation of the Hebrew there is, it is too wonderful. And the Hebrew word for wonderful appears 13 times in the Old Testament And on every single occasion, it's referring to God. So there's something really awesome about this being. In fact, at the very end of verse 22, Manoah says, doesn't he, we have seen God. So what did God do in this situation? Well, he brought his word. Because the key statement about everything that's going to happen in the Samson story is in verse 5. Can we all see verse 5 in our Bible? Verse 5, the angel says, The boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. The boy won't finish the job, but he's going to start the job in a big way. Uh, One writer, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, says that verse 5 is the star that must go before us as we work our way through the Samson story. It's telling us what God is doing throughout the life of Samson. Now that's an important principle because you see, as we go through these chapters, if we focus on Samson, we're going to get into all kinds of problems. He's a very complicated guy. But if we keep asking, no, no, what is God doing here? Well, we're going to find some extremely helpful answers. So, here we have the word of God that this child to be born is going to begin the deliverance of Israel. Now think about it. Israel's situation looks hopeless on the ground. But God is declaring in advance that deliverance is coming. Now friends, that is vintage Yahweh. That's how God works. Just think about a couple of other examples in scripture. In Genesis chapter 12, uh, God speaks to Abraham and says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And of course we know that that blessing came through Jesus, who was descended from Abraham's line. But the point is, you see, that God declared it centuries in advance. Then uh, to King David in 2 Samuel 7, God promised a descendant whose kingdom will endure forever. Now we know that King David had a son, Solomon, but of course his kingdom didn't endure forever. But in Luke's Gospel chapter 1, 
when the angel announces the birth of Jesus, he says that he's coming to sit on David's throne because he is from David's line. So he is the one who was promised by God to King David centuries in advance. And you remember on the road to Emmaus, we looked at this earlier in the year, the the risen Lord Jesus is walking with his rather shell-shocked disciples. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, Jesus there is opening their minds to understand that this deliverance The deliverance of the cross was declared in advance. Because, you see, God's deliverance is never just a last-minute reaction. And what has all that got to do with you and me this morning? Well, in Ephesians 1 verse 4, Paul says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of of the world. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus before the world was even founded. And you see, we can learn from this, friends, that our God is never taken by surprise. And it is his word that gives us hope. That's the point. The word of God gives us hope. And it means that if you've got a Bible in your hands, then you've always got a reason for hope. So the grace of God is announced in the Word of God. And then thirdly, I'm going to spend most of our time on this, the grace of God is revealed in the way of God. Now you'll notice that God's grace in this chapter centres on three people. Uh, There's an unborn child, who's actually born only in the last two verses. There's a mother and there's a father. And God is preparing the people that he's going to use. And let's think for a moment about how God does that. Firstly, God prepares a child. That, of course, is the focus of the chapter, isn't it? And we might think that uh, as a response to, to Israel's hopeless situation, that that is completely inadequate. You know, if God's going to work a mighty salvation, we would expect something rather more impressive than a baby. Because, yes, babies can be rather sweet and lovely sometimes, But you see, babies are helpless, they are weak, and they are completely dependent. A baby can't do anything. And if a baby is going to deliver, well, he's got an awful lot of growing up to do, hasn't he? So it's going to be slow. Now, you see, to our minds... If God is serious about salvation, he ought to be in a hurry. He ought to send an impressive, 
strong, powerful person and he ought to send him as quickly as possible. But God doesn't actually seem to be in our sort of a hurry. And you know there's something really, really interesting here because where else do you find an entire chapter of the Bible preparing for the birth of a baby? You see, here the entire chapter is preparing us for the birth of Samson. He's only actually born at the very end. And you see, if we're reading this intelligently, we can't help but look forward to the birth of another baby. And how was his deliverance declared in advance by God? Well, keep a finger in Judges. Turn with me, please, to Isaiah 9 on page 485. Isaiah chapter 9, page 485. We looked at this a couple of years ago, but I want us to look at it again very briefly. Isaiah 9 and verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, that's a reference to Gideon of course, as in the day of of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So this is going to be a pretty significant deliverance. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. A child! Now that, of course, is what the angel says in Luke chapter 2, isn't it? The angel says, a saviour has been born, and everybody says, terrific, where is he? And the angel replies, you will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. So God's greatest answer to human need is a baby. Isn't that extraordinary? But of course, God knows what he's doing. So whilst you and I might conclude and write the word inadequate, God overwrites that with the words perfectly adequate. And uh, come back to Judges now, because in verses 3 and 4, God tells the woman three things in advance about this child. Uh, First, a child will be a son. Second, he will be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, in verse 5, till the day of his death, in verse 7. Now, there's something rather fascinating here, because um, the Nazarite vow is explained in Numbers chapter 6. You can look it up later. And in Numbers chapter 6, we're told that a Nazarite vow was a voluntary commitment for a limited period. 
And during that period, you weren't supposed to drink anything from the vine or cut your hair or touch a dead body. Those were kind of the outward signs of that special commitment. But in the case of Samson, it was different because there was no choice. He didn't make a voluntary commitment and there was no time limit. And the point is, you see, that God was determined that this baby would be set apart to him for his entire life. And then the third thing that God says is that this baby will begin the deliverance of Israel. He won't finish it, but he will start it. And after Samson, the Israelites will be headed in the direction of completely throwing off Philistine control. Never again will the Israelites settle down comfortably under Philistine dominion. Others are going to complete the job, uh, specifically Samuel and Saul and Jonathan and David, of course. But Samson began it. And you see, they're all part of the same delivering process. So there is hope because God has prepared a specific deliverer. But he's introduced to us as just a little baby. Secondly, God prepares a mother. Now that's important, of course, because the little baby isn't going to be able to do very much for quite some time. And the first thought when you look at the mother in question is that this is absolutely impossible. Because in verse 2, the storyteller takes us from the hopeless situation in Israel in verse 1 to the hopeless situation in a family. Look at verse 2 with me. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. So apart from the fact that she was married to Manoah, the first thing that we're told about her is that she was sterile and childless. And in verse 3, the very first words of the angel to this woman are, you are sterile and childless, which of course sounds a bit blunt, but that's God putting his finger on the main point. And of course, in Jewish culture, for a woman to be childless was actually a source of sorrow, but also of shame. And if God is planning to bring a baby into the world to deliver Israel, we read this and we think, God, you've got the wrong address. And yet, you see, this is something that God does again and again throughout the Bible. God particularly chooses barren women to give birth to men that God is going to use to achieve his purposes. So, barren Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Barren Rachel 
gives birth to Joseph. What's Joseph going to do? He's going to save Israel. Baron Hannah gives birth to Samuel. Baron Elizabeth in the New Testament will give birth to John the Baptist. And Mary, a virgin, will give birth to Jesus. Now that pattern, it can't be an accident. Because God, you see, delights to take a situation where you and I have written the word impossible and then right over the top of it, nothing is impossible with God. And so, verse 3, the the angel gives the woman this painful reminder, you are sterile and childless, but you're going to conceive and have a son. And at the end of the chapter, verse 24, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. And so, what was promised by God was exactly what happened. And this principle that God uses the the manifestly supernatural to achieve his purposes, it takes all of the glory away from us, doesn't it? Because we have to say, only God could have done this. And friends, you know, it's really, really important for us to, to get this into our thinking. Because there are times when you and I agonise over the enormous difficulty of reaching certain people for Christ. But you and I have a God who is able to deliver salvation even when it seems impossible. And if the first thought regarding this woman was impossible, the second thought we might have when we think about her is insignificant. You see, what's her name? What's her name? Well, we don't know. We're not told. Seventeen times in the chapter, she is simply Manoah's wife or the woman. Maybe that's how she thought about herself, but we can't be sure. But God takes this insignificant-looking woman and he writes the word significant all over her life. You see, in verse 3, the the angel of the Lord appeared to this woman, this sterile, childless woman. Her husband isn't there. She's eager to involve her husband because both in verse 6 and verse 10, she, she dashes off to tell her husband what's happened. But the angel appears to her. When Manoah hears about it, he prays to the Lord to send the angel again, verse 8, and very, very wonderfully, the, the angel does reappear. But who does he reappear to? Verse 9, God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband, Manoah, was not with her. So you see, it's very deliberate, isn't it? 
the angel of the Lord is primarily appearing to her. And when Manoah finally gets his chance to speak to the angel of the Lord in verse 12, his response to Manoah is all about his wife. Look at verse 13. The angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I've told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I've commanded her. You see, three times in the passage, the angel of the Lord spells out what Manoah's wife must do. It's all about her. So she's not simply going to have the baby. No, no, she's going to create the environment in which the baby's going to grow up. And by her example of not drinking wine or eating anything unclean, she's going to create the context in which this baby uh, is going to uh, understand his identity as a Nazarite. And God gave this responsibility to her. Now, that doesn't mean Manoah didn't have any responsibility, but in this particular case, the primary responsibility was hers. So, is she insignificant? Of course not. There's a famous poem, I don't know whether you've come across it, but there's a line in this poem that says, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. That's rather good, isn't it? And there's something, you know, in being a mother that we need to celebrate and promote, especially in our culture, where mothers are sometimes regarded as being second-class citizens. How significant it is to be a mother. And God here prepares a mother. And thirdly and lastly, God prepares a father as well. Because from verse 8 onwards, Manoah plays an increasingly significant part in the story. Unlike his wife, he is named 14 times in the passage. And when we look at the portrait of Manoah in this passage, perhaps the word we might use to describe him, I want you to think about this with me, I think the word we might use to describe him is the word ignorant. You see, throughout the story, Manoah is not quite up to speed. He's always about half a step behind his wife. I think that can happen with husbands sometimes. So, when the angel of the Lord first appears, uh, Manoah's not there. And the second time uh, the angel appears to his wife, he's not there either, at least to begin with. And he's the one who needs to pray for another visit because he feels he needs more instruction. And when he wants to make a meal for the angel, which actually ends up as a sacrifice, Verse 16 says, Manoah did not realise that it was the angel of the Lord. 
And after the the extraordinary disappearance of the angel in the flames, Manoah doesn't know that they're going to survive. We're doomed to die, is what he says in verse 22. And it's very interesting, I think, that despite Manoah's ignorance, God takes this man and very gently leads him into what he does need to know. And as I've been reflecting on this, I think there's something very attractive about the way that God dealt with Manoah and the way that Manoah responds. You see, what does strike me positively about Manoah is that he believed what he did know. And I think that reminds us, doesn't it, that hope is not a matter of being clever. Hope is about believing what God says. You see, in verse 8 in the passage, this, his barren wife tells him that the angel has said that she's going to conceive and have a child and Manoah believes it. So when he prays in verse 8, he prays, notice this, about the boy who is to be born. In other words, he believes that is what's going to happen. There's no question in his mind. So he's not like um, Zechariah, is he, in Luke chapter 2, who says, um, how can I be sure of this? Um, Elizabeth, my wife, is barren and I'm pretty ancient. How can I be sure? Well, Manoah, faced with the same situation, the challenge of a barren wife, he wasn't worried about what he didn't know. He believed what he did know. And you see, faith is the root of hope. And you and I need to be sure that we believe. There are lots and lots of clever people in the world who will take a Bible in their hand, they know a great deal, but they don't believe it. And so they have no hope. Secondly, notice that Manoah prayed, verse 8, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. Now this is interesting, isn't it? Because we said at the beginning, Israel wasn't praying. But Manoah was. And you get this lovely phrase, don't you, at the beginning of verse 9. Can you see it? God heard Manoah. And the Hebrew word for heard there is particularly strong. It's not just that God heard the sound. No, no, it's, it's hearing in the sense of responding. You might say to your friend, I hear you means you've not just heard the words, it means I'm going to respond. And you see, this man prayed 
to the God who hears. And so can we. And that always brings an element of hope, doesn't it, into whatever situation we might be facing. We might say, I am distressed, here is the distress that I feel, but I can pray. And notice also that Manoah feared God. Pretty obvious, I think. But when the food is brought out and put on the rock, the Lord does this amazing thing in verse 19. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Just like Jesus, isn't it? Ascending to heaven at the beginning of the book of Acts. He was taken up uh, in front of the eyes of the apostles and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now that's what the angel of the Lord does here. And uh, at the end of verse 20, seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground when the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realised that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. See, he's terrified. Perhaps that's an overreaction. But you see, he doesn't take it lightly that God has intervened in his life in this remarkable way. And you and I might smile and we might look down our noses at Manoah and say to ourselves, how naive, how foolish. But we shouldn't. Because when a person fears God, that is a sign of spiritual health. And when they don't, fear God, it is a sign of spiritual sickness. So I think Manoah is a terrific example for us. A man who believed, a man who prayed, a man who feared God, and therefore Manoah ends up as a man with hope because he knows salvation is coming. There are plenty of clever men in the world today who never get as far as Manoah. So as we conclude, as we reflect on chapter 13, friends, we see that God's grace is demonstrated in a deliverance that is yet to come the stage is set for the beginning of a salvation that will bring hope into a hopeless situation. Now, you and I can't possibly know all that God is doing behind the scenes in our generation. But however bad things might sometimes seem to be, this passage is reminding us of something truly important which is that we have God's word to give us hope. God doesn't have to be perfectly visible 
in order for us to be sure that he is wonderfully at work. God is on the move. How do we know that? Well, we know it because all over the world, people are coming to faith. The gospel is being preached. And even if in some places it seems like the church is is dying and dead, in other places the church is bursting with life. And all sorts of people are becoming Christians in the most unexpected and the most unlikely places. Because God is building his church. That's what Jesus said. And Jesus is coming back. And therefore, you see, we who believe God's word, we are the people of hope in the world. In fact, can I say we are the only true people of hope in the world. The tragedy of our world today is that there's multitudes of people out there with their pleasures and their pursuits and their brilliance, but in many cases, they have no hope. Because without God, there is no hope. But with God, there's always hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you so much for the word of hope, for the fact that even though we are unworthy people who are the sometimes people of God, who fall far short of you and fail you in so many ways and can't consistently be the people you want us to be, yet you in your mercy and grace are dealing with us not according to our sins, but according to your mercy. And so we thank you for your promises to us. We thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you that you hear our prayers, that you are still working salvation, and that even in the very worst of times, you are still on the throne. And so, Lord, we pray we would take these terrific assurances to heart, remembering that these great truths in Judges 13 are absolutely true for us as well. And as we bring up our children and as we see them grow and as we try to instruct them, help us to trust in your perfect faithfulness and sufficiency the God who understands and knows all our needs. Lord, encourage our hearts and make us people of hope because we trust your word. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.